We'll open your Bibles to Ephesians chapter 4. We'll continue in our study of this amazing epistle. Uh, as you know, it's our practice at Mission Road Bible Church to do what's called consecutive expository preaching. Just a reminder of what we're doing. We believe in the inerrant, infallible, inspired Word of God. And the best way to know what God has said is to take what God has said in context and unpack it one verse at a time, which is our custom and our method. We're reading through and studying through and applying through the book of Ephesians, Paul's letter to those Christians in Asia Minor who lived at Ephesus, likely a circular letter that went around all of those churches in the area. But it's it's important to remember why we're going slow and while we're being deliberate to take every phrase, every verse, because it's the very word of the living God. We have found ourselves in the fourth chapter, and the text that we're looking at addresses the subject of the unity of the Spirit among believers. The title for today is Preserving the Unity of the Spirit, and it comes from the first three verses of Ephesians 4. Let me read those for us. Ephesians 4, verse 1. Therefore, Paul says, I, the prisoner of the Lord, implore you to walk or live in a manner worthy of the calling with which you have been called. And with all humility and gentleness, with patience, showing tolerance for one another in love, being diligent to preserve the unity of the Spirit in the bond of peace. From the very beginning, the gospel promoted an unexpected unity among the followers of Christ. This can be seen dramatically in that collection of these very diverse men who we know as the 12 disciples. It's probably most pronounced by looking at two men in particular, Matthew and Simon the Zealot. Matthew was a tax collector, very wealthy man. The tax collectors had an interesting job during this first century. They would stand at the corners of the road and exact tolls on people for actually being alive and living in their area. And what Rome asked these Jewish leaders to do was to exact a, a tax on the people, but the way they made their living was they could add whatever percentage on top of that regulated tax for their own pockets. It's very interesting that there were more expensive and less expensive tax collectors, and you could actually arrange the way that you traveled around cheap and more expensive tax collectors. The more expensive ones were on the main thoroughfares, and you could go a longer route and pay a less exorbitant tax. The Jews hated the tax collectors. They were sellouts, Jewish sellouts to the Romans. Matthew was called by God, by the Lord Jesus Christ, to be a follower. So was a man named Simon the zealot, who was, well, a zealot. He was zealous. What does that mean? 
The Zealots were a group of people who hated Rome with a passion. In fact, they were, they were those who pushed back. They were, they were the patriot of patriots in, in Judaism. They would ambush Romans. They would do anything they can to cause insurrections. And it's not a stretch to know that the Zealots hated the tax collectors. And the tax collectors felt threatened by the Zealots. And Jesus called Matthew, the tax collector, and Simon the zealot to be among the first 12 of the disciples. Add to that another layer. There was blue collar and white collar, which probably included Matthew. Some think that many of the original uh, financial backing that came to, for the uh, gospel enterprise came from Matthew, who would have been well off. Yet some blue collar men associated with the disciples who were not rich tax collectors. Yet at least four fishermen, Peter and Andrew, who were brothers, James and John, sons of Zebedee, who were brothers. Perhaps three others were fishermen. They were blue-collar, hard-working men, kept to themselves, no doubt, leather-like skin from having spent all day in the sun. The social class of the fishermen and the social class of the tax collectors were extremely different. So you have this confluence of men, the followers of Christ, and this confluence was a powder keg for disunity. Tension between blue collar and white collar social structures, tension between political rivals, the zealots and the tax collector. Put simply, the loyalty and love that these men had for Jesus Christ overrode the differences they had with each other. Well, in our study of Ephesians, we saw something similar in chapter 2 and in chapter 3. The gospel brought together two groups of people who equally hated each other, Jews and Gentiles. The Jews looked down on the Gentiles as those excluded from the God. The Gentiles looked down at the Jews as those who were religiously weird, Paul showed us how this came to fruition in Ephesus. Remember in chapter 2, we spent some weeks studying this. You can flip back over to Ephesians 2, 11. He's talking to the Gentiles. He says, remember too that you, the Gentiles in the flesh, who are called the uncircumcision by the so-called circumcision, which is performed in the flesh by human hands. This was, these were both terms of derision. And without being graphic about it, the Gentiles would look at the Jews and say, that surgery you had, that's weird. And the Jews looked at the Gentiles and says, that surgery that our male boys had makes us superior. So they called each other, the circumcision and the uncircumcision. He says, remember, speaking to the Gentiles, that you were at that time, when you were not with the gospel, separated from the gospel, separate from Christ, excluded from the commonwealth of Israel, Strangers to the covenants of promise, having no hope and without God in the world. But now, in Christ Jesus, you who were formerly far off have been brought near to God by the blood of Christ. For he himself is our peace, who made both groups, Jews and Gentiles, into one group, broke down the barrier of the dividing wall by abolishing in his flesh the enmity, the fact that they were enemies with each other which is the law of commandments contained in the ordinances, 
so that in himself he might make the two into one new man, thus establishing peace and might reconcile them both. This would have freaked them both out. Into one body through the cross, having by it, having put to death what made you enemies, the enemies. I mean, in that first generation for Jews, we, we, it just doesn't impact us like, like it should. But to, to see Jews and Gentiles as brothers and sisters in the Lord, worshiping together, accomplishing the mission of the church together, was astounding, unexpected, remarkable, and supernatural. We walked away from looking at that passage and also the ones in in chapter 3, where the Gentiles are brought near to the Lord alongside the Jews. And we found an enduring application for us to work diligently to preserve the unity that God has brought about by bringing us into the same group with, drumroll, people who are not like us. Said another way, we are fellowshipping in the church with people who otherwise we, we wouldn't get along with. We would have nothing in common with. We would have no reason to have a care group with or to pray for. As we learned in our last study from Ephesians 4.1, Ephesians 4 marks a central change in the book of Ephesians. The first three chapters have emphasized the theology of the gospel. They've emphasized doctrine. And though very practical, they were very densely theological. These last three chapters, chapter 4, 5, and 6, will focus on living a life that results from that doctrine. These three chapters are so what? So you believe that, so how does it impact your life? In fact, the remainder of Ephesians, beginning here in chapter 4, Paul's going to expand on two main themes. First, he's going to call us to unity among other believers. And secondly, he will outline what it means to live a godly life. Especially the first 16 verses of chapter 4 are how to be unified, why it's important to be unified. But then beginning in 4.17 and following, it's about how to live a holy life. Now get this, don't miss this. The majority of the commands, the majority of the expectations that come in these last three chapters about living a holy life, the majority of those expectations have to do with relationships, how you get along with people, especially in the church. He'll talk about what a Christian marriage is supposed to look like between the spouses and what Christian parenting is to look like and what Christian childhood is to look like looking at your parents and Christian employment and Christian business leading and being a boss How to deal with others and resolve conflict, which will be the last part of chapter 4. How do you relate to others? That's substantially an application of our doctrine. Now, I do want to pause for a moment as we begin these last three chapters of Ephesians, and it's so different. I want to pull the car over just for a moment and ask if we indeed are truly ready for what's coming. I think it requires some preparation for these next three chapters. Are you ready? Are you willing? 
to be genuinely changed. Not to act a little different, but to be genuinely changed. Are you ready for Paul to speak to our hearts and for you to be the target? Oh, how easy it is to hear a passage and to think, oh, so-and-so really ought to hear that. I hope they're listening. (laughs) I'm going to send this recording to so-and-so. Can we commit to listening for God to send the arrow of conviction into our own hearts? Are you ready to see the issues in your own heart and life that need to be addressed and, and to be corrected? These three chapters are a tonic for the soul, but they're corrective as well. I mean, is your disposition that you, that you really need counsel and help to follow the Lord more intimately, more completely, more faithfully? Listen, being conformed to the image of Christ is painful. It's productive, though. It's major surgery on our soul, and we should expect some pain from that surgery and some pain from the rehabilitation. Anyone ever had any rehab done after a surgery or after an injury, and you go to the physical therapist? If, you have a, if, if there are physical therapists in here, we, we love you. But basically, the, the, the physical therapist, like if you have a shoulder they're working on, finds the things that hurt in your shoulder and they make you do those things. It, it, it always involves pain. I used to, th- before I ever went to physical therapy, I thought, oh, this is great. I'll go and get a little massage on my shoulder. It's going to be so nice. Uh, wrong. I mean, you better buckle up. They're, they're going to find what hurts and make you do it. That's physical therapy. In a real sense, that's what we're going to do. We're going to enter a spiritual rehab. We're going to have our souls addressed, have surgery on them, and rehabilitated to health And it always involves pain. So I want to invite you to approach these next three chapters with me, with each other, that these will be wonderfully productive and painful as well. Now, these first three verses of chapter 4, we need to understand, this is going to be a little counterintuitive. In order to understand verses 1 and 2, you have to go to the end in verse 3 and then come back with what you find in verse 3. Okay? Verse 3. Being diligent to preserve the unity of the Spirit in the bond of peace. Notice that Paul's call is to preserve the Spirit's unity. It's not to generate it. That's fascinating. Chapter 2 and chapter 3, we just read it. God causes us to be naturally symbiotic. Brothers, sisters have fellowship because of our faithful, common love for Jesus. The Spirit of God generates it. (laughs) It's up to you and me to preserve it. He's calling us to preserve, protect, the unity that the Spirit of God has already produced. And in the three verses that we're looking at this morning, they're aimed toward what it means to preserve the unity of the Spirit in the bond of peace. That's where he ends. And the first three verses tell us how to get there. So let's break that down by 
looking at three ways to preserve the unity of the Spirit. Three ways to preserve the unity of the Spirit. We'll delve into exactly what that is in just a moment. Basically, it's the unity that God has given us amongst each other with so many differences because of our common love for the Lord. Three ways to preserve the unity of the Spirit. The first is in verse 1, preserving unity through consequent living. This is a repeat. This is, this is repetitious of what we did in our last sermon, which was all in verse 1. Verse 1 is point 1 of this, but we spent all of our attention on that last time. Preserving unity through consequent living, verse 1. Therefore I, that's Paul, the prisoner of the Lord, he's in prison in Rome. He doesn't say he's a Roman prisoner. He doesn't say he's a prisoner of Nero. He doesn't say he's a prisoner of the Roman guards who's under sword point. He says, I'm a prisoner of the Lord. He looked through his undesired physical condition and circumstances and saw what God was doing. And we looked at for a few weeks the ability to see through the world we live in and that there is a God who is doing something is such a spiritual maturity. It's such a gift to see that God is active. And Paul was able to do that. Most people would look at Paul and say, you're in a bad way in prison. Paul said, I'm a prisoner of the Lord. I'm exactly where God wants me to be. What a grace. Then he says, I implore you, that's the Greek word parakaleo, from which we get paraclete, that's what the Holy Spirit is called. In John 14 and John 16, he's the one who comes and calls alongside us. He's the encourager and the corrector and the equipper. I come alongside you, I implore you, I beg you, I call you to walk, that's a common phrase for live, to walk, live in a manner, in a way, worthy of the calling with which you've been called. Very simple. I, I'm calling you to live in a way that is in balance with what you believe. That word, manner worthy of the calling, is the word axios. It means balance. I want your doctrine and your life to be congruent, to make sense. You're living like this because you obviously believe these things about the Lord Jesus and, and the Word of God. You believe these things about the Word of God and the Lord Jesus. Therefore, I understand how you live. It's to live a worthy life that's in balance between our doctrine and our living. Listen, the gospel is far too profound not to have a profound impact on the life of a believer. Let me say it this way. Jesus is far too powerful to reside with you and it not make a difference. Profound difference. Paul's call here in verse 1 is, you preserve the unity by living out your doctrine, by consequent Christian living. Very simple. And we Looked at that for a whole sermon last time, so I won't belabor it. But secondly, beginning in verse 2, he gets a little more specific in application. And that's number two, preserving through, preserving unity rather, through godly virtues. Preserving unity through godly virtues. If you're going to live in a manner worthy of your calling, that's going to show up in how you live. And he gives us three staccato uh, virtues, characteristics, attributes, points of godliness 
that should flow and follow our confession of Christ. The first is in verse 2, and it shouldn't surprise you. With all humility. With all humility. He starts in a very significant place with humility. First of all, he says, with all humility. That's, that's a way of saying with comprehensive humility. Not just humility with some people and not everyone. Not just a little humility and when you want to and a little pride when you want that. No, with all humility. It is characteristic of your life. Interestingly, humility, as we'll see in a moment how it's defined, in Paul's day was seen as a quality for slaves and for wimps. Wasn't a desire quality. And if someone called you humble, it wasn't a compliment. Yet Paul urges us here to be humble. In fact, to be comprehensively humble in all of our life. What does it mean? Well, Basically, we see the inherent worth and value of others, especially of the believers that God has called us to love and serve. And we desire to put their lives and their interests ahead of our own lives and ahead of our own interests. It's significant that Paul begins with this virtue. Why? Because of the opposite. To say with all humility is to say, with no pride. You see that? It's the exact thing said from the opposite perspective. Have no pride. Pride generates disunity. Humility generates unity, very simply. Pride was what made the Jews and Gentiles look down on each other. They both thought they were better than each other. So it would be humility that would facilitate their genuine unity, their love for one another. So what is humility? And I, I remember going to a camp when I was a, a, a young man and hearing something. I haven't forgotten. I don't even remember who said it. But it made an impact on me because I had to undo it. And I remember the guy preaching saying, Humility is that great quality that if you think you have it, you don't. And I was like, ooh, ah. And then you start thinking about that. So you're asking me to do something that if I do it, I won't know I did it. Or God is asking me to be something, the obedience of which I will never know if I was obedient. It doesn't make sense. So as much as I appreciate this, this man's sentiment and telling me that that's not what humility is. Humility is something you know you have. And it's not this blushing kind of, um, you know, gee, look down at the ground attitude. No, no. We know exactly what humility is because Paul tells us, Philippians 2, verse 3, do nothing from selfishness or empty conceit, but with humility of mind. So we find out a few things right there. Humility of mind is the opposite of being selfish and being conceited. With humility of mind, it's a disposition, it's an attitude, it's in your mind. Here it is. Regard one another as more important than yourself. There's humility. 
You think that other people and you treat other people are more important than you are. He goes deeper. Do not merely look out for your own personal interests. I think it's interesting. He doesn't say, stop looking out for your own personal interests. He says, don't merely do that. He assumes we're going to look after ourselves. He says, don't just look after yourself, but also for the interests of others, their needs, their desires, their interests. And then he says this. Remember that humility was not a greatly desired quality. Have this attitude. Humility is a disposition. It's that attitude. Have this attitude in yourselves, which was also in Christ Jesus. So to say be humble is to say to be like Christ. And then it goes into three verses of the richest, deepest Christology in the whole New Testament. But it's important to remember that this illustration of Christ's humility is just an illustration of the command for us to be humble. And what an illustration it is. What was Jesus' humility like? Well, although he existed in the form of God, he did not regard equality with God a thing to be grasped or shown off. Wow. If I had been Jesus of Nazareth, and we should all be thankful I wasn't, and I was God, I would have been tempted to tell people that and brag about it. What a beautiful sunrise. Yeah, I made that. Uh, there's a girl, she's, she's, she's beautiful and, and the object of my dreams, I, I, I want to pursue her. Well, I made her for you. What, what, what a great coconut juice. Just thinking of something culturally relevant, that was a desired drink for them because it was so pure. And he could say, yeah, I made the coconut tree and the coconut juice and I made that. I would have been tempted to tell people that. And he walks through pretty much 33 years in relative obscurity (laughs) and doesn't brag about it. Now, did he say he was God over and over? Did people know he was God? Ask his mom. Because right at the beginning of his ministry, he shows up late to a wedding. She comes and says, son, they ran out of wine. Why did she say that? Because she knew he could do something about it. So he turns water into wine. And the head waiter said it was the best part of the wine. I mean, it's not that people didn't know he was God. He just didn't brag about it. He he didn't show off. Instead, verse 7 says he kenosis, he emptied himself. He set aside the use of some of his divine attributes for a period of time. Taking on the form of slave being made in the likeness of men, being found in appearance as a man, he humbled himself by becoming obedient to the point of death, even death on a cross. If the most prominent expression of God in the incarnation was his humility, that's what we just read, then it's not an overstatement to say that we are never more like God than when we're truly humble. Oh, but the glories of our own imaginations about ourselves can quickly emblazon our pride in our hearts and we can love ourselves and love being loved. 
Windwater says, we simply cannot overstate how deeply God detests and abhors pride. Peter picked this up. In 1 Peter 5, 5, he says, clothe yourself, all of you, clothe yourself with humility. Let that be what, you're, what, you're, what people see on you, humility. For God is opposed to the proud, but God gives grace to the humble. In his classic book on humility, Andrew Murray showed the contrast between humility and pride like this. Humility, the place of entire dependence on God, is from the very nature of things the first and highest duty, first and highest virtue, rather, of the creature. In fact, humility is the root of every virtue. And so, he says, pride, or the loss of this humility, is the root of every sin and every evil, end quote. That's quite a statement that every virtue, every display of godliness will ever demonstrate is out of humility, putting the interests of God and others before ourselves. But every demonstration of pride is, every demonstration of sin is rooted in pride, which is us promoting our own self and our own glory, our own enjoyment above others. God is opposed to the proud, Peter says, but gives grace to the humble. James 4, 6, he gives a greater grace. He says the same thing. Therefore, it says, God is opposed to the proud, but gives grace to the humble. And then 1 Peter 5 goes on to say, humble yourselves under the mighty hand of God that he may exalt you at the proper time. Then a very interesting phrase. I wonder if you've ever connected this. Casting all your anxiety on him because he cares for you. Why does he say that there then? Humble yourselves before God, casting all your anxiety on Him. I think there's a connection. Because if you, can, if you put all of your interest on others, God and people, you can have anxiety that your needs aren't met, that your emotional needs go untouched, that you're not taken care of, which causes anxiety. I don't think it's any accident. He says, humble yourself under the mighty hand of God, casting your anxiety, I think, for doing so on him. It makes sense that it causes anxiety when you let go of self-absorption and pay attention to the interests of others. Jesus himself, Matthew 23, 12, whoever exalts himself will be what? humbled, and whoever humbles himself will be exalted. I think Paul is saying if we commit ourselves to the needs of others, the natural self-centeredness in our hearts will be, be elbowed out of focus in our hearts. It'll, be, it'll, be, it'll decline. Pride and self-focus will be displaced in our hearts, producing humility and the service of others instead. By the way, Paul makes the point that humility is the fruit of maturity, spiritual maturity. When he's talking about the qualifications for an elder, he says in 1 Timothy 3, 6, he's not to be a new convert. Why? So that he will not become proud, conceited, and fall into the condemnation incurred by the devil. Something interesting there. He says, don't choose spiritual leaders who are proud because they'll fall into the snare of devil. 
You choose mature leaders, and how do you know they're mature? They're humble. They put others' needs and interests ahead of their own. Well, if that's not convicting enough, he goes to another layer, gentleness. Another very easily misunderstood concept. Not only with all humility, but with all gentleness. What is this gentleness? So talking about putting a, a puppy in your lap and being gentle so you don't hurt it? No, 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 that's not what's at all. Dr. Honer helps us, the Greek scholar. He says, gentleness is the opposite of self-assertion, rudeness, and harshness. It suggests having one's emotions under control. It does not suggest weakness. It is the mean, it's the balance between one who is angry all the time and one who is never angry. One who is controlled by God is angry at the right time, but never angry at the wrong time. Moses, for example, was known as the meekest man of all men. Numbers 12.3. Yet when he got angry, he, yet he got angry when Israel sinned against God in Exodus 32. Christ was meek and humble in heart, Matthew 11.29, yet he became angry because some Jews were using the temple as a place for thieves in Matthew 21. Gentleness, control. It's words used other places, very interesting in pastoral context, in caring, helping context. Galatians 6.1, Brethren, if anyone is caught in a trespass, you who are spiritual, mature, restore such a one in a spirit of this word, gentleness. Each one looking to yourself so that you too will not be tempted. 2 Timothy 2.5, with gentleness, correcting those who are erring. Strength under control. Colossians 3.12, we'll come back to this one as well. So as those who have been chosen of God, holy and beloved, put on a heart of compassion, kindness, humility, there's our word, gentleness, there's our other word, and patience, which will be our next word. It's strength under control. By the way, it's a fruit of the Spirit. Love, joy, peace, patience, kindness, goodness, faithfulness, and gentleness. Listen, gentleness is very simple. It's a calmness that does not provoke a fight. It calmly navigates around conflict. It settles, diffuses conflict. It doesn't accelerate it. And if you're tempted to think of this virtue as a weakness, remember, it was characteristic of Jesus himself. I mentioned before, Matthew eleven twenty nine. 29, take my yoke upon you and learn from me. A yoke was a piece of wood that you put over an animal that you'd attach ropes to that would pull a cart. You could yoke it together with another animal. Paul talks about don't be unequally yoked. Well, Jesus says, take my yoke upon you and learn from me, for I am gentle, there's our word, and humble, and you will find rest for your souls. Now, this is what I find interesting. Did a little work on this in my uh, Greek lexicon, my Greek dictionary. You know where this word comes from? 
It's mainly used for domesticating wild horses, animals, taking something wild and making it under control. That's gentleness, controlling one's strength to be courteous, to be considerate, to be more concerned about them, humility, than yourself. Can I say it this way? I know this sounds weird. We as Christians are to be domesticated creatures. God domesticates us. He takes us from being wild to being under control. He adds one more, patience. Oh, I wish he would stop, but he kept going. Patience. Believers should embody patience. Macrothamios. Big word. It means forbearance. Unflappable. Are you ready for this? It means being unflappable when someone is irritating and aggravating you. Ouch. That when someone provokes you, you are the calming influence, not the accelerant in the conflict. Patience is the attitude that does not give up. It forbears. It stays strong and calm. It's endurance in the face of adversity. James 5 talks about this being an attitude of the prophets. As an example, brethren, of the suffering and patience, that's our word, take the prophets who spoke in the name of the Lord. They were mistreated over and over and over again. They were abused. They were persecuted. But they forbeared. They stayed strong. It's the self-restraint which does not quickly retaliate when a wrong is suffered. Now, put yourself in that context for a moment. It doesn't retaliate when you're wronged. That is so unnatural, isn't it? Galatians 5.22, it's also a fruit of the Spirit. Fruit of the Spirit is love, joy, peace, patience. There's our word. Colossians 1.11, strengthen with all power according to His glorious might for the attaining of all steadfastness and forbearance or patience. Colossians 3.12, so as the one, one who has been chosen by God, as those who have been chosen by God, holy and beloved, put on a heart of compassion, kindness, and then these three words that we learn in Ephesians are here in Colossians. Humility, gentleness, and forbearance or patience. I actually like, I prefer the, um, the, the, the word um, patience and forbearance than even being patient. You could actually, the best term for it is long suffering. You can, you can last a long time under being mistreated. That's what it means. Paul even tells Timothy, preach the word, be ready in season and out of season, reprove, rebuke, exhort with great patience and instruction. You can be long-suffering when people don't listen. Patience endures mistreatment and returns grace 
and kindness. Can I say it this way? It is impossible to pick a fight with someone who has these qualities. Humility, gentleness, and patience. But the one who's quick-tempered is not living in these characteristics. That brings us to our third way to preserve the unity of the Spirit. You see where if you're acting this way, it's very difficult for there to be disunity in your care group or in your circle of friends. Number three, preserving unity through loving relationships. Loving relationships. Paul breaks this preservation quality down into two parts. First of all, he talks about loving tolerance. Loving tolerance. He shifts from these um, uh, uh, nouns now to a participle and says, have patience, have gentleness, have humility. And while you're doing that, showing loving tolerance or, or tolerance for one another in love. He pivots to how these three virtues show up in our relationships with a participle that stitches them together, showing tolerance. Now, tolerance is not my favorite word, honestly. And I understand the old New American Standard actually translated this forbearance. Tolerance has such political, charged nuances today. You know, tolerance for this will be tolerant for that. It really, it's forbearance. I'm going to put up with this. And here, to understand this, we meet a workhorse. And I do mean a workhorse concept in the New Testament. Alelon. I give you that Greek word because it means one another, and it's used, are you ready for this? 59 times in the New Testament. One another. Alelon. What does it mean? It means to do something for someone else, for one another, reciprocating relationship. Almost 60 times we're exhorted to actually do something towards another person, do something about another person, another, one another. There's an old saying that the primary activity of the church was one anothering one another. And I, I think that's true. We care for one another. Here, it's we tolerate, we forbear with one another in love. It speaks to our ability to love a person while knowing their shortcomings, recognizing their shortcomings, observing their quirks, and covering their sin. In love, we forbear, we, we, we tolerate, we don't explode. The great example of this is our Lord Jesus. I love this passage in 1 Peter chapter 2. You've been called for this purpose since Christ also suffered for you, leaving an example for you to follow in his steps. Listen to this. Who committed no sin, nor was any deceit found in his mouth. And while being reviled, 
he did not revile in return. While suffering, he uttered no threats. But he kept entrusting himself to him who judges righteously. Tolerance and love. Let me be specific. This is speaking directly to to us in the church, about relationships in the church, about other believers. Do you love each other enough to tolerate sin and knuckleheadedness? Kids, can I talk to you for a second? If you would learn how to act this way toward your brothers and sisters, you're patient with them, you love them, you're gentle, you're humble, you think about them more than you, you are seeing the work of God to get your life so ready for a lifetime of following the gospel. These are great little ways to take care of your brother and sister that train your mind to think rightly about the Lord. And for those who have spiritual brothers and sisters who are a little bit older than the kids, same thing. You're unflappable. No one can pick a fight with a person like this. Why is this important? Because it's a divine stewardship. And now we finish where we begin. Remember I said we had to go to the end to say here's where we're headed. Being diligent to preserve the unity of the Spirit and the bond of peace. The Spirit of God, as we learned in chapter 2 and chapter 3, has brought about a unity between believers and their common love for Christ, a unity with, them, with each other in the gospel, and we are called to preserve and protect what God has done in our unification. It implies an all-out effort toward unity. Being diligent could be translated, some of your translations may say, make every effort. Do everything you can. Be diligent to preserve this unity. A comprehensive effort towards unity will be a humble, gentle, patient, loving effort to keep unity. This by no means means that we have any bitterness or animosity toward any other believer. A few weeks ago, we had a Elders retreat. I love being with those men. We, we just had a wonderful time of praying and strategizing and thinking about you and thinking about our church. One of the things that we highlighted again, which we've said many times before, is that we're convinced that if Satan wanted to mess up our church, it wouldn't be very difficult, but it wouldn't come from where we expect. He's, he's not going to come and probably try to mess with our doctrine. I mean, I've got... 
I got several thousand sermons somewhere online. And so what I believe is I'm pretty accountable to what we believe. It goes back 20 years of Rod Gertzen's uh, sermons. I mean, we're, what we believe is pretty accountable. It, it'd be very difficult for Satan to come in the church and say, hey, did you know that Jesus isn't really God? That would be a tough sell. But as we discuss this, we have every expectation that he will try to mess with our church by creating disunity, criticisms, unresolved conflict, slander, gossip. Wow, do you carry? Oh, I hate to ask it, but we have to. Do you carry any bitterness or animosity toward any other believer? In the church at large, but even in ours, there's no room for it. I would beg you to resolve it even today. There were three occasions when the disciples had an argument that we have a record of. I'm sure they argued more than this. And especially with Matthew and Simon, you can bet that there were probably some tense dinner conversations. But we have a record of three occasions where the 12 disciples entered into an argument with each other. And on all three occasions, it was about the same thing. You remember? They were arguing about who's the best, who's the greatest. And it got really embarrassing. They're walking up from Jericho and they're, they're talking about this. And then they're talking about it at the Last Supper. And they're arguing about, okay, Jesus is the Messiah. He's the king. Any time, any day, he's going to be on the temple as the king, and we're going to be the right-hand men. Not only are they right-hand men, but they said, well, yeah, but you're kind of a third-degree right-hand man because I'm going to be on the right side. I want to sit on his right side. Well, I'm going to sit on his left side. And they said, no, they're elbowing each other all the way. I want to sit closer. I want to sit closer. I want to be associated. And they're arguing about this. By the way, <laughs> all three times when this argument rises, it's right after Jesus says, I'm going to Jerusalem, will suffer many things, and die. And they said, yeah, I'll tell you where I'm going to sit. Genius. One of those times, the last time was at the Last Supper, an argument erupts. And you have to picture the Last Supper. They would have been in probably a U-shaped table where uh, the servers could come in the middle and serve. The table was probably only about a foot off of the ground, and they would lean on cushions. Their feet would be pretty close to each other, which is why washing feet was a big deal before a meal. So they're all down there. There's, there's 13 of them at this table, and... Lots of conversations, and during one, one, one part of the table, they're having the argument of, I'm going to sit on the right, I'm going to sit on the left, I'm the great, I'm better than you, I'm more important, I was here, I was the... And Jesus interrupts them in John 13. And you can hear the room go really quiet. He says, a new commandment I give you, that you love one another even as I have loved you, that you also have love for one another. And then this, by this, by loving one another, 
all men will know that you're my disciples if you have love for one another, if you're unified. You know what's really encouraging? You pick up the book of Acts after the resurrection and you start reading the relationship between these men. They're not arguing about the greatest anymore. In fact, they're all in a race to who's going to be dead first because of Christ. They got the point. Can we commit to glue? You say, what's the glue? Look at the last phrase. The unity of the Spirit in the glue, the bond, the glue, the connective tissue of peace. Jesus says, Matthew 5, 9, Blessed are the peacemakers. They will be called the sons of God. Are you a peacekeeper and a peacemaker and a preserver of the unity? What? What kind of church would we have if this was a priority for us all? Walking in unity is all about navigating and resolving conflict. And guess what Paul talks about in Ephesians 4, 25 to 32? Resolving conflict. He's going to tell us exactly how to live in this kind of unity. So the question becomes, are we making, are you making every effort to preserve the unity of spirit and the glue, the bond of peace between us in our relationship among the saints? Boy, I hope so. Humility, gentleness, patience, loving tolerance. I think we have our marching orders. Let me pray. Without the gospel, we could not accomplish any of this, Father. Please enable us and empower us to be these kind of people for your glory and for the good of the saints that we know that you called us to do ministry with. In Jesus' name, amen.